Hello, my name is Dr. Roger Henderson. I'm a GP in Southwest Scotland, and I also co-host the GP Notebook study groups. Welcome to this GP Notebook podcast, where we discuss bite-sized topics aimed at all of us working in primary care. You can also find us on all major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Do please follow us to receive notifications about new episodes, and if you like what you hear, do please consider leaving a review to help other listeners find us. It really does help. You can also follow us on Twitter, at GP Notebook, for more information about new podcast episodes and study groups, and you can also follow me there too, at Roger the Doctor. Finally, you can visit gpnotebook.com for podcast episode show notes and to find out more about upcoming study group meetings. Now, in this episode, I'm going to be discussing hyperhidrosis and its management. So let's just start off with our sweat glands. We've got three to four million eccrine sweat glands, called eccrine as the sweat is secreted out of the cells, so ec meaning out of, as in ectopic, and they cover the entire skin, apart from the lips and parts of the genitalia. Now, between them, they can produce up to 12 litres of sweat per day and are mostly concentrated on the palms, soles and armpits. They're controlled by the sympathetic nervous system, you know, the flight and fight system. But uniquely, the end effector is acetylcholine, not noradrenaline or adrenaline. We should probably briefly mention the apocrine sweat glands here. Now, these are confined to the axillae, the perineum, and the areoli, and they produce a more viscid secretion with pheromones, and so they play a part in sexual attractiveness. Now, many of our patients equate sweating with body odour, but the two things actually don't have to go together. But when apocrine secretion becomes infected by a bacteria, it does produce a malodor responsible for BO, or body odor. Apocrine hypersecretion doesn't exist, but disease of the glands can do, for example, with hydradenitis suppurativa. Now, as doctors, we categorize hyperhidrosis into two main types, essential, which in my experience is the one I see most in my surgery, and secondary, due to an underlying cause. So essential or primary hyperhidrosis affects the sites with the greatest concentration of eccrine glands, so the palms, the soles, and the axillae, and usually presents soon after puberty, typically remitting spontaneously in midlife, usually around the mid-40s, 50 at the latest. And actually, if the onset is after the age of 25, I'm usually concerned that this might actually not be essential hyperhidrosis, but something else due to an underlying cause. Essential hyperhidrosis presents twice as often in women as in men, although part, part of that may simply be because women seek more advice about it more often than men. It isn't really known how common this is, and, ver- and estimates vary from 1% to 5%, but I think 1% to 2% is probably reasonable, and in roughly half of people with it, there is a positive family history of hyperhidrosis. Importantly, patients with 
primary hyperhidrosis do not sweat at night. A really key point. This is really important to help distinguish this from secondary hyperhidrosis. Patients with primary hyperhidrosis wake up dry. However, during the day they start to sweat and the sweat often drips off their skin or onto their clothes without evaporating and their skin can actually look very boggy and waterlogged. If you want to assess hyperhidrosis, it can be scored slightly crudely by the Hyperhidrosis Disease Severity Score. And this simply relies on patient reported outcome that looks at underarm sweating. And it's ranged 1 to 4. So you ask the patient, 1 is the underarm sweating never noticeable and never interferes with daily activities? 2 is it tolerable? but sometimes interferes with daily activities? Three, is it barely tolerable and frequently interferes with daily activities? Or four, is it absolutely intolerable and always interferes with daily activities? That gives you a very good objective view as to how bad the condition is. Now in secondary hyperhidrosis, the excessive sweating occurs secondary to an underlying condition and can be either generalised or localised. But if someone has generalised secondary hyperhidrosis, there is an extremely long list of possible underlying medical conditions. Now these can be as simple as obesity. The endocrine ones we know about, for example thyrotoxicosis, menopause, diabetes, or even pheochromocytomas in rare cases. They may also be due to an underlying febrile illness. So TB we often think of, but again with TB the sweating is classically nocturnal, and bacterial endocarditis should always be at the back of our minds. Lymphoma, again, typically nocturnal sweating. And we also mustn't forget that some medications we commonly prescribe do cause excessive sweating in some people. So for example, SSRIs, opiates, ACE inhibitors, but there are lots more. So always just think about this. Um, we've got someone coming in with excessive sweating. If you've got sweating localized to one area, then think about specific underlying causes. So unilateral hyperhidrosis, think about damage to the spinal cord. Now, I've seen one patient with gustatory hyperhidrosis, or von Frey syndrome, where damage to the auriculotemporal nerve results in nerve fibres becoming effectively tangled. And in that case, it was a complication of surgery to the parotid gland. Shingles may also do this. Very rare, but worth mentioning. Other uh, causes of localised hyperhidrosis, think about peripheral neuropathy, think about strokes, or even intrathoracic surgery complications. Should we be investigating our patients with hyperhidrosis? Well, I think it is always sensible to do so, and there's lots of potential investigations we can do. A generalised blood test is always worth a screen. Full blood count, sugar, TFTs, inflammatory markers, LFTs, HIV, if appropriate, and if there is a relevant history, think about a malarial screen. A chest x-ray plus or minus a MAN2 test may also be a very sensible thing to do. Treatment is obviously the first thing that 
many patients will come asking for. And there's a huge range of possibilities here. But one of the first things to say to our patients, which is slightly counterintuitive, I know, is to not wash all the time, which is a tendency for many of our patients with excessive sweating to do. Because excessive washing with soap raises the skin pH for one to two days, and that then in turn encourages bacterial overgrowth. And it's that bacterial overgrowth that triggers body odour. So the most common treatment, I suppose, we would all sort of reach for would be the roll-on aluminium chloride hexahydrate 20% um, preparations, things like Dryclor and Anhydrol Forte. And these work because aluminium enters our sweat ducts, then causes edema and then obstructs them, so the sweating reduces. However, very important practical point with these roll-ons, you must apply them to dry skin. The easiest thing to do is say to a patient, put it on at the very last thing at night before you go to bed. Because if you put it on to damp skin, it really can irritate and become sore, and also, in occasion, it can tarnish jewellery. If you do get intermittent soreness, which can occur, then a very mild to moderate steroid creams can help. Avoid shaving the armpits 48 hours beforehand and when you're starting using these, put them on every night for about a fortnight and then once a week to once every three weeks once things have settled down. If you're using them for palmo plantar sweating, however, you probably need to use them more often and for a longer period of time. Another clinical strength topical antiperspirant you might want to consider are the zirconium salt-based types. Simple water soaks can help, um, you know, things like swimming or long soaks in a bath. These are temporary, they might only last four to six hours, but essentially what you're trying to do is waterlog eccrine ducts and, and block them. If you want to go to tablet treatment, then systemic anticholinergics can be really helpful. But as we all know, the problem with these is their side effect profile. Personally, I would probably go with something like oxybutynin, slow release, because that slow release preparation can reduce the likelihood of side effects occurring. Patients may come in and ask you about botulinum toxin injections, Botox. However, these are only licensed for axillary hyperhidrosis. What they do is they prevent the synaptic release of ACH and bind non-competitively. So about three months, six months, maybe nine months before symptoms recover. They're not suitable on the hands, however, because there is a risk of permanent muscle weakness. Very occasionally, physiotherapy departments will provide the, surface, uh, the service of iontophoresis, can be useful in extremities twice a week and many people see an improvement after four 20 or 30 minute sessions. Topical anticholinergics may be worth thinking about, um, things like robinol 2% glycopyrrolate. And if you have hereditary emotional hyperhidrosis, then diltiazem has been tried in the past. And on that point, always treat any underlying anxiety that may be there because that can have a significant impact on the level of hyperhidrosis present. In, the, in America, um, one of the pioneering treatments is being considered and hasn't really reached us here yet, 
is ultrasound destruction of eccrine glands. Although this is interesting, it's not over here yet, but keep a watch out for that because this may be coming our way. And sympathectomy is the one that we are often taught about. However, in my view, I would say avoid if at all possible or use it as a treatment of last resort. And this is really because of the significant risk of compensatory hyperhidrosis in the long term. Auxiliary hyperhidrosis has about a 30% recurrence rate. But if it has to be used, it can be effective on occasions. But I would use this as treatment of last resort. So I hope you found that overview of hyperhidrosis helpful and that you've found it interesting and informative. Do have a look at the show notes that accompany this particular episode at gpnotebook.com and we'd be very grateful if you consider following the podcast and leaving us a review on your favourite podcast platform. Do feel free to get in touch via social media at gpnotebook or email us support at gpnotebook.com if you have any questions, comments or ideas for future podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. You should also visit us at gpnotebook.com to register for our virtual GP Notebook study groups and download free shortcuts to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. But until the next time, thank you for listening and goodbye. Thank <music> you.